0: Did you see the stylish Kids in the riot Shuffled up like monks Said the night on fire Wampus bleed Trunches and shields You know I cherish you My love
1: Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James, this is Pete. G'day everyone. It is April 9th and this is episode 104. We've got a big show for you guys coming up. We're going to be talking to Mark Bowline again. Mm-hmm. came on the show last year. We got a lot of great feedback. He's now in Australia with the Institute of Public Affairs speaking around the country on why the words of Western civilization must endure. So he's going to come on the show. A bit of a different pace to that interview than mm-hmm. what we usually do, I'd say, guys. Highbrow, brow I
2: mean we were talking about high culture Yeah Which is ironic
1: Yes uh, And yeah getting into like What can you learn about humanity through great books Which mm-hmm. is different to what we usually do I had a lot of fun Read and those myths liked
2: it a lot. Read the myths That's what the message was But listen yeah. to the interview
1: uh, So yeah like I said Bowline is around Australia at the moment We had our event in Melbourne last night I think we've got Brisbane and Sydney coming up later this week So thanks so much for IPA members who came out last night Always good to see the IPA members and IPA supporters out and about. We had a few people come up to us to talk about how much they like the podcast, which is always good news. Uh, shout out to the people I met in Guzman y Gomez after, some fellow connoisseurs of below average Mexican food. Uh, and They might be listeners, James. They might. Well, I hope. Oh, Guzman y Gomez. Yeah. Oh, well, then, in which case, that's fantastic Mexican food, and please give me it for life because that's all I ever eat. Um, before we get into the show, a okay. conversation topic without notice. Ooh. Can we just get over April Fools as a thing? No, I don't mind it. You don't? Yeah. Well, th- we, uh,
2: a certain member of staff got taken in by an April Fools joke this w- year, what which I one? found pretty funny. Oh well, I won't. I won't name the I staff member. You
1: can't do that and then not name the staff. Well,
2: member. Well, I won't name the staff member,
1: but I'd name you. It did. If we had that staff member on, they would name you and It
2: could put up as a thing. You guys should do this for. Um, you guys should do this for the podcast, which is they would banned April Fools joke jokes in England because of Brexit. And then I read the article and I was like, "This is
1: an April Fool's joke published uh, on April one." So see, anyway, see the thing is, April Fool's makes this podcast so much harder to research. Yeah, because not only do we have to read the story, we then have to find it from four different sources just to confirm that it is not, in fact, an April Jews joke. Uh, uh, April Fool's joke. That's right. We're going to come up to something about banning the word cyclist later in the show. I spent more time trying to find out if it was an April Fool's joke than I did about the article because it was just that insane a story. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that. Now I've started feeling. No, trust me, because I put it in a strange times, um, which is something that will be very familiar to people that subscribe to the IPA review. Uh, if not, just become a member and then you get the IPA review with your membership. Um, but yeah, I I definitely had to make sure that it was an April Fool's joke, so it wasn't just three hundred words of people going, "Is this guy an idiot?" Well, that's which good is usually stuff. what I do. Um, Something that wasn't an April Fool's joke, again, I hope, I like, I just really hope, uh, is, hang on, what, what are we starting? Jippy Goat Cafe. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think let's it's, start with this. It's either Gippy or Jippy, but I'm
2: not sure, so I'm just going to say Jippy. The Jippy Goat Cafe in Victoria has been forced to close after months of threat, threats and violence and abuse from vegan, oh, I keep saying vegan. Why do you Ve- keep saying vegan? I don't know. It's just one of those things. Vegan activists. Seventy vegan ac- activists stormed the, the Give You Goat Cafe in December, stealing three pet goats and one lamb, loading them into cars. Activist Cara Garrett was fined one dollar for removing an identifying tag from one of the
1: stolen goats, and Which, another- To be fair, would be very very hard to pay for vegan activists. Oh,
2: well, now or now he's saying vegan. Now no, I'm just
1: making fun of you. Uh,
2: and another vegan. Uh, sorry, another one dollar for housing livestock without a property identification code. Garrett was ordered to pay. 250 bucks for the theft, despite the estimated value of the stock being $2,000. Uh, and that's, so that was back in December. And subsequently, cafe owners John and Penny Gohmans have written that uh, our staff of customers have been subjected to threat for nearly four months of constant harassment, vile statements and threats from the abusive vegan activists. And the statement goes on, but
1: effectively, they've closed. See, protesters in Australia have an incredible ability to find ways of protesting that gains them no support. Well, we'll get to that later. We'll but get yeah. to that later, but then just like... If you want to bring attention to the treatment of animals in Australia, mm. don't make a goat cafe that everyone loves and seems to treat the goats really well, and they seem well fed, and people pat them. Don't make them close down.
2: Yeah, well, they're loved goats. Yeah, and why? And I saw the footage of this because the, the security fi- security footage was in the media. And in, to add to your point, they were all dressed like. In black, and it's like, you know what we should do? We should make
1: ourselves look like fascists. Yeah.
2: People <laughs> exactly. love
1: that. People yeah. love that. Just um, really, you know, just start covering your hands with things as well, just to really drive home the point. That's right. Uh, march in formation.
2: It was, it was pretty creepy, and yeah, not a, not a happy story yeah. to start um, off.
1: Exactly. It's one of those things where if you genuinely gave goat, those goats the ability to decide whether or not they wanted to stay... They're staying.
2: Well, uh, in the footage, they were running away. Yeah,
1: <laughs> just, were like, oh, I'm not going back with those guys. I like that my That was home. a wild afternoon. I like the lattes here. Yeah. Uh, people pat me and I feel nice. Yep. Yeah. So hopefully that cafe, I did see on their Facebook page when they said they were shutting down, there was a whole lot of support for people saying, mm. hang on, I do want to support your cause. Mm-hmm. So hopefully there's a, still a happy ending to be had with this story. Doesn't look good at the moment, but you know, fingers crossed. And why is there such small penalties for just nicking stuff? Who knows? Like it's just question without notice. Question without notice. Like I, I don't quite know the ins and outs of the Victorian government system, and uh, I don't like it that way. All right, uh, I've got one for you. So this should be a gigantic news story, and it's not. So there's a oh, company yeah. called Carbon Engineering, and they have found like a lot of this is above my scientific knowledge, which was no. Uh, <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> which peaked at year 10 when I just decided the chemistry wasn't my thing and then I went straight humanities for the rest of my schooling. But anyway, so a company called Carbon Engineering, they found a way that they can extract CO2 from the atmosphere and it's like this gigantic thing. Oh, what a, what a way to fight climate change. They've already secured $68 million of funding from Chevron, Occidental and BHP. Um, and this should be great news, but apparently it's not, Pete.
2: That's right. It was it was on the BBC, but it's not as big a news as, as you'd think, given you know, how preoccupied we are with this issue. Yeah. Do you want me to read the statements that the environmental activists make? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, isn't it funny that we have this awesome thing that's going to be good for the environment, but environmental activists are not happy. It's a huge concern. Um, Sapora Berman, international program director for Stand.Earth, told BBC C- can News. Can I just chime in for a second there? Stand.
1: Stand.Earth, terrible name. Terrible name for an activist organisation. It confused me a bit. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. Uh, as on dot, as in like an actual dot, it is spelled out D O T Earth. Yeah,
2: terrible. I'm not terrible. sure what that, that means. Anyway, and she went on to say, we need to be working together to figure out how we move away completely from fossil fuels. That's our moral and economic challenge. But these technologies provide a false hope that we can t- continue to sp- depend on fossil fuels and produce and burn them. And it's like, well, but the only reason we need to do that is because of the emissions. And if this offsets the emissions, then. We don't need to worry yeah. about it anymore.
1: And therefore we give they give the game away that the aim of the game is not saving the planet from global warming, it is just making sure that humans don't have nice things. That's just deindustrializing like moving the, the world, trees. Yeah, exactly. The world was better before we had industry, so therefore we should remove industry. And even if we can have industry without any of the environmental detracts, yeah. bad thing.
2: Yeah. I and mean, like the argument is oh, you know, like maybe that maybe carbon emissions are a bad thing, but it's like we can solve them with our ingenuity and yeah. Good ideas, not yeah. like us two. Not a other got other smart God. people.
1: <laughs> Nina might be able to. Yeah, Nina's I, I, got some
2: good yeah. ideas.
0: But yeah. yeah. I'll just put filters on sky.
1: Ooh, filters on the sky.
0: Filters on the
1: sky. <laughs> be good for Instagram. I know. No if the sky already came with a filter, could, yeah. it'd be some real good Instagram we could content. Live in darkness forever. <laughs> See. Anyway, that's they're the main two things out of that. Yeah, that's what I've got. So uh we'll keep an eye on that one. I got another one here. Sorry. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg had an op-ed in the Washington Post last week calling for more government regulation of Facebook, which is kind of ironic as he runs Facebook. Uh, so he says there needs to be more of an active role for governments and regulators. He especially mentions there should be more regulation in terms on harmful content, election integrity, privacy and data portability. Mark don't, don't follow us. You do not care about privacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, the only regulation he wants is, I want more people's privacy. I want to know more things. Uh, but it's really interesting because the internet was always been the Wild Wild West and that was the frontier of free speech and it was a place where governments couldn't track things and we could just see the marketplace of ideas and now the local sheriffs of the Wild Wild West are just like, you know what? Uh, no more free speech. That's uh, a good analogy, James. Yeah. I can keep going with it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, <laughs> the okay corral. Uh, anyway, uh, so he's doing this because in the wake of Christchurch, like there definitely are going to be regulations coming. We've already seen the Australian government sort of uh, weigh out what they're going to do, and you think the American government's going to try? Like there will be some Congress people, especially as Elizabeth Warren, who thinks Facebook needs to be more regulated. So he's just trying to get out ahead of the story and not be the bad guy. And you know, as always, if when a business calls for more regulation of their own business, it is a hell of a way to stop new people coming into the business and challenging them because there's so many more regulations for new up-and-comers to comply with. Um, I want to pull out these things. But the point is, like, this is terrible for free speech. I want to point out one point that he says. He said he floats, like, ways that free speech could be assessed on Facebook, and mm-hmm. one particular proposal was there should be 40 people who are experts on free speech and safety making binding decisions. <laughs> Yeah. That is terrifying. 40 experts on free speech is the last group of people I would want deciding what's free speech. For
2: the whole internet, well, the whole of Facebook. Yeah,
1: the whole of Facebook. That is terrifying.
2: That is terrifying, especially if it's overseen by the government. Yeah. Um, And you're right, you're right about the business thing. Like once... You know, you're going to get regulated, you get on the front foot, you offer to help the government, you make yep. it favourable for yourself and make it difficult for new entrants to come into the market. And you can see that their market share in America is falling. Like, the number of people, that it, the number of users is going down and the average age of users is climbing. Yeah. So you can see why he would be keen to prevent new players from entering the marketplace.
1: Yes. Uh, and it's also going to look really good when he eventually runs for president. Uh, speaking of, so this actually segues nicely into occupational licensing, Pete. Okay. All right, so Joe Biden, still the front runner, I think from uh, the Democratic primary nominee. He was front-runner last time I checked, but that was pre uh, all the stuff.
2: Yeah, I uh, definitely don't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, but anyway, so he made a speech where he was talking about hairdressers and all the occupational licensing for hairdressing, uh, specifically pointing out that you do need like 400 hours of training. Hmm. If there's one politician who's going to take interest in comes. other people's hair, it comes. it's Joe Biden. <laughs> so I'm glad he's on the front foot with this one. Uh, Anyway, so but it is important that we do have politicians talking about the dangers of occupational licensing. But the thing is, the 400 hours thing that he quotes about cosmetology isn't true. There's not a single state where someone can qualify for a cosmetology license with less than 400 hours of training. In New York, which is a state with the lowest training requirements, it's a 1,000 hours. That's crazy. Now, for people that don't know what occupational licensing is or don't exactly know what Pete and I are talking about when we do this, so occupational licensing is like how many hours of training do you need to... For example, be a cosmetologist or braid hair always gets thrown in. Mm. Uh, All these industries. And what it is, is just like Facebook, it is people that already have these jobs. They say this is amount of... The training you need to perform our job correctly which effectively prices out so many people from being able to call themselves uh cosmetologists or hairdressers or anything in their state mm-hmm. and that drives all the business to the people with or who already have licenses it is a great way of making sure there's no innovation and making sure there's no competition they are terrible terrible things now there, there is some use you do want surgery performed on you by someone who is a qualified doctor but when it gets down to hairdressing and cosmetology that's when there are poor people who desperately need a job and they can't afford all these licensing and they can't train for a 1,000 hours without the proper pay. They are the ones who get hurt.
2: It's a bit like the cauliflower rice from last yes. year, last week. It's just meant to uh, protect the players that are already in the industry and it's wrapped up in you know consumer welfare and yeah, all this yeah, stuff, but it's people that don't have jobs that get hurt,
1: just like minimum wages and all the other stuff. All right, cool. Um, so, yeah, hopefully Joe Biden, you know, that's, again... That man cares about hair. The he does. He cares about I mean, hair on other people. That man cares about hair on strangers. You can tell he cares about hair. Uh, maybe th- maybe that's what he's doing, is just research on other people's hair. Hmm. Who's to say otherwise. Who's to say otherwise. I always All get right. that wrong. Uh, uh, let's yep. go. Yep. Yep. yep.
0: <laughs> that was, <laughs> so that was
2: <laughs> very sleek. No, yeah. so uh, Bill Gates, nuclear power, one of our ongoing policies here at the IPA at the Nuclear IPA power podcast in every backpack, Peter platform. Nuclear power. And Bill Gates uh, has tweeted... Uh, yesterday, a bipartisan group of leaders in the U.S. state, U.S. Senate, which doesn't really grab the attention, but he's Bill Gates, uh, introduced <laughs> the Nuclear Energy Leadership uh, bipartisan group. Oh my God! Can I please stay awake? Anyway, introduced the Nuclear Energy it, it, Leadership so. Act. Which establishes an ambitious plan to accelerate the development of advanced nuclear reactor technologies. I can't overstate how important this is. Now, what he's talking about, of course, is a group of senators um, introduced the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act a couple of weeks ago, it aims to reinstate American leadership in the nuclear sector. It comes on the back of uh, an act introduced in January, the Nuclear Energy Innovation and Modernization Act, modernization act, which modernizes U.S. nuclear regulation and supports the establishment of a licensing framework for next-generation advanced reactors and that became law in January now look you know this is a pretty complicated act and who knows how it's going to end up I think it's just good that they're entertaining this as an electricity option
1: break it down for me like I'm five are we closer or further away from nuclear reactors in every backpack
2: we're closer good good so obviously the one thing you have to take out of that is Bill Gates is obviously a listener Mm -hmm. so thank you for listening Bill
1: can we please have some money yeah yep maybe just a board position at Microsoft I like Seattle I want to head down
2: um yeah so consider that as well and um This has always been a real taboo
1: in my lifetime, but now
2: it seems to be gaining uh, momentum, which is good. Fantastic.
1: Impact. Uh, And again, if you do care about climate change out there, nuclear power, it's a way to keep it affordable and also to save the planet. Uh, I don't see... Well, yeah, again, the reason why we don't have nuclear power is because one Soviet uh, thing that was poorly run and poorly built melted down and then because Japan got hit by an earthquake and then a tsunami and it put a nuclear reactor at risk, mm. which, you know, you never know when that's going to happen in the middle of South Australia. No, that's earthquake true. earthquake and a tsunami. Could, hap- could happen in the outback at any time. At, at any moment. <laughs> if we get through this podcast without an earthquake and a tsunami hitting the middle of South Australia, I will go he. Uh, anyway, um, That is it for the start of the show. So we will now go to our interview with Mark Bowline. It's long and it is really interesting and it is definitely a different... It's a change of pace to what we usually do. So I'm really excited to play it to you guys. Uh, Before we do, head on over to ipa.org.au. We've got a bunch of content this week, which uh, which hopefully you guys really enjoy. Uh, You had John Roskam in the Australian Financial Review give his take on the budget, talking about how the Liberals have taxed themselves out of office, and maybe if this budget had arrived five and a half years ago, the Liberals would be in a slightly different uh, position, but because they're probably going to lose the election in a few months, it's way too little, way too late. You also had Andrew Bushnell talking about the harmful... I always get the name of this act wrong, but basically, it's the act that they bought in to stop the Christchurch live streaming happening again.
2: I thought you didn't know Bushnell's name then. Yeah, that's a bit rough. I
1: think it's Andrew. Sorry, Andrew Bushnell talking about the Sharing of Abhorrent Violent Material Bill 2019. So that's, yeah, again, that's the one that's going to stop live streaming of Christchurch happening again. Uh, except the problem is the legislation makes any owner of a media-sharing website liable for what's on there. So if they don't shut down the Christchurch live streaming quick enough, then they are held responsible and they could face jail time, which is very concerning. So you can read why Andrew is concerned about that over at ipa.org.au. And you've also got this week's edition of the Looking Forward podcast with Sinclair Davison and Bella joining Chris Berg and Scott Hargraves to talk all matter of things, including the campus free speech crisis the budget and uh, labor's electric car policy. So if you do if you are interested in any of those areas, make sure you're downloading Looking Forward podcast. It's available on any podcast app and through the IPA website. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts and iTunes, make sure you're leaving that a five-star review. Okay. And thanks to listen thanks for everyone to listening in our podcast. It was great seeing so many listeners of the Mark line event last night. Make sure you're telling your friends and family best way to grow a podcast is is uh word of mouth so make sure you're getting the word out there it's available in all podcast apps they can download it whenever they want and if you are listening through apple Podcasts or itunes just like looking forward podcast leave us a five-star review you can also leave a comment for the show uh that's all i got or oh, um i've forgotten to do this the last two weeks in a row Head on down to Improv Taxi Humanity at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. We are at Kicks Bar and if you do like Cards Against Humanity, it's basically an improv show where the audience plays Cards Against Humanity and we do improv based off what they come up with. A whole bunch of fun. Kicks Bar, Thursday to Saturday, for so the last two weeks of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Come on down and see it. What should they Google in case they didn't get that? Improv Taxi Humanity. All right, Nina, well, if people want to support the IPA and they already listen to both podcasts and they bought tickets to my show, how can they even further support the IPA?
0: Well, you can support the IPA by becoming a member of our growing community. <laughs> Just click on the join button at ipa.org.au and starting as low as $22 per year, you can become one of the loudest voice of freedom in Australia.
1: Very cool. Let's go to that interview now. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show. Very excited for this one. Mark Bowline, professor of English at Emory University. You're in Australia with the Institute of Public Affairs, speaking around the country. So uh, I guess we'll start there. So talk us through what's going to be in your lecture around the country.
3: Uh, well, I think I was invited here to talk about a few different issues, the main one being Western civilization, which seems to have become a hot topic in Australian uh, intellectual and educational affairs, and I've been teaching Western civilization for a long time. Uh, I went to school in the United States. I went to UCLA in the 1980s to finish my PhD. Then I got a job pretty quickly at Emory University, which is in Atlanta, teaching in an English department. And I I came up really as uh, really what you'd call an education conservative. I, I was all the time. I was a political liberal at that time very strongly committed to leftist ideas in politics and, and even economics as well. But I always had this conservative idea about, about education, particularly higher education, which involved reading the classics, doing your homework, uh, studying English literature from Beowulf up through James Joyce, and the same thing with American literature, uh, the Puritans, up through the, the modernists, Hemingway and Faulkner and Fitzgerald, and that was, that was always my commitment, and I still believe in that canon, uh, still believe in the necessity of teaching young people today those traditions. I think it makes them better li- have better lives and richer experiences and makes them more interesting people. So, of
2: course, your tour guide for your tour of Australia is Dr. De- Dr. Bella Debrera. How is she going so far? Are you having fun on tour? Bella, Bella she does love to party. She's a party animal.
3: <laughs> Bella Bella is a great uh, raconteur and we also have good conversations because she's a historian yep. and she's very learned herself and I can I can refer to Samuel Johnson and John Dryden and she knows all the references. Okay. And she knows a lot of references that I don't. So she, she's she's a great challenge. Uh, she's been wonderful.
1: Fantastic. All right. Uh, so, but you're talking about how you're an education conservative, and you think about all the importance of these great books. Uh, but that's the problem: is that you seem to be in a bit of a minority among English teachers around America at the moment. So, uh, what is their case against Western civilization?
3: Well, the strange transformation in great books happened in the course of the '60s and '70s. What a lot of people don't realize is that great books education going into ordinary schools in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s was actually a left-wing enterprise. The idea was that the elite, the upper class, are getting the great books. They're getting Latin. They're getting St. Augustine. They're getting Dante and Shakespeare and Milton in those private schools and, and the elite public schools. And the working class, as I understood back in the 1930s, they're not. And that the acquisition of the Western tradition was understood to be an equipment for class mobility. That having this kind of cultural knowledge, cultural literacy, really was an important part of joining the professional spheres. And that if you don't know very much Shakespeare, if you can't recognize what people mean when they mention the Reformation, then this would disqualify you for climbing the, the social and economic ladder. And so bringing the great books to the middle class, to the working classes, was taken as a progressive enterprise. Over the course of the 60s and 70s, we had the transformation of the great books tradition in terms of identity problems, right? It's too Eurocentric. This was the, the more popular term in the, in, the, in the 1980s. It's Eurocentric, and we started referring to all these famous authors as dead white males, you know, capital D-W-M, and that this was part of the multiculturalist enterprise. The new idea that there are many traditions out there, that there are uh, women authors that have been unrecognized because of their femininity. We have authors of color who have been denigrated simply by virtue of their identity, and we need to bring them, we need to diversify the canon, to bring them in in order to have a more accurate rendition of the past and one that does not privilege one strand and one identity. That's what happened in the, over the course of the 80s and 90s. So, And that, that view largely holds sway,
2: doesn't it, these days? In, in most American colleges, would you say?
3: It does. It does hold sway, and it has altered the curriculum. We have had Western Civ general education requirements dropped. We have had a move toward more contemporary uh, literature and art in the humanities fields. And the main reason for that was that if you go before, in the English literary tradition, if you really go before the 19th century, it's almost all white male. And the same thing goes for the American literary tradition as well. And this is unacceptable for the multiculturalists, the people committed to diversity, which for them means diversity of skin, color, gender, sexuality, uh, certainly not diversity of thought and and understanding. So uh, we we simply have to adjust the curriculum in order to meet the personnel. The so personnel I, aims. Of of the disciplines,
1: yeah. Because uh, we got like we're, we're a free market think tank. We believe if you know uh, the public will eventually get what they want. So, do you feel there is a thirst for these sort of uh, courses at university? And if some universities can start to build these things, that there is going to be a flood of students who do want to learn about these literature works. Negative. Really?
3: Oh, that's sad. <laughs> but you
2: you, you <laughs> yeah. have your own programs, don't they, Don't you that are successful.
3: Well, here's what has happened in the humanities fields in higher education in the United States. And I think that this is a strong cautionary tale for Australian universities as well. Since the 90s, and we have oriented the disciplines more and more toward identitarian matters, Mm -hmm. and that identity politics have become central to the teaching, of the the literary and artistic past students have left in fact from 2011 to 2017 alone the absolute number of history majors in the united states dropped more than 30 Mm -hmm. percent english and foreign languages and philosophies dropped more than 20 percent this is a huge departure from these fields now there are different pressures on students these days, but certainly one factor in this plummeting enrollment situation is the rise of identity politics in humanities classrooms. Gentlemen, are identity politics fun? Absolutely not. No. Are they inspiring? (laughs) No. No, I mean, when, when a teacher comes in and teaches Shakespeare, and the main thing that that teacher wants to talk about is the fact that women were not allowed to appear on the stage in Shakespeare's time. Uh, women could not be performing actresses, and that these parts were played by usually boys, uh, teenage boys. The female parts were played by teenage boys. And, or, or if someone comes in and talks about uh, the founding fathers in the United States, uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, and begins with the fact that they owned slaves, and that they were hypocrites, and that they talked about creating this great new nation based upon equality, and boy, did they live their lives in, in, in contrary to those beliefs. And just harping on this, you're going to get a classroom that isn't inspiring, that is filled with resentment, that takes the heroes and shows they have clay feet, and that this country isn't so great. Uh, the, these, these great authors aren't so great then you're going to get a good portion of 19-, 20-year-olds who simply don't find it in an inspiring atmosphere. And if you're not inspired, why major in the humanities?
1: Where do you reckon that jealousy comes from, the fact that we do need to tear down all these historical figures? Where does that come Like, Because this does seem to be something that's really come out in the last 20 years or so. So what's made it different now that the jealousy is sort of rewarded as opposed to previous generations?
3: Well, I, I think we have to recognize that identity politics can exert a very powerful attraction upon people. What what do identity politics do? Uh, Identity politics do what a lot of mythical systems do. Identity politics gives you a story, a plot with characters and a moral meaning It tells you who are the bad guys and who are the good guys. It gives an explanation for certain wrongs or injustices that you see in the present. I now have a rational explanation for those injustices, and I see a pathway to fixing those injustices. And most importantly, I've got an outlet for my disappointment, my unhappiness, my resentment at the existence of those bad circumstances at the present time. Now, Christianity gives you an explanation for uh, a lot of evil you see in the world, and it begins with the fall and with original sin. You, you can see how that would, would operate for people. What do identity politics do? Identity politics, again, gives you a plot filled with a dramatis personae that establishes all the moral parameters and it gives your your own unhappiness, your own resentment, a place to go. Envy at others who have privilege, you know, to use a, a loaded term these days. It's hard, to, it's hard to cope with that kind of envy. I mean, envy... Of all the mortal sins, envy I think is the most corrosive one because what do you do with envy? With wrath, you go out and you 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 hit a heavy bag, you know, for twenty minutes, and you can you can imagine some faces on that heavy bag, and it makes you feel better. You know, you, you leave that meeting with, with with something annoying happen, and that, that, that helps you get you know work off that. Lust, you 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 you've got your outlets for lust, uh, gluttony, you you know you you run to McDonald's what do you do with envy it's 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 a it's a very difficult thing to handle with envy you can go one i think you can go in in, in two ways one you can try to love the person who has what you don't have and feel good for that person having something that you have but that's that's very hard to do especially when you feel That person doesn't deserve that privilege. And I do. I'm a better person than that person is. Uh, So if you can't love that person, you can resent that person. And if you can find a system that allows you to express that resentment and feel justified, morally justified in that expression, that's an intoxicating experience for you to have. And I see that when the young social justice warriors on campus, the 20-year-olds, get up there at a talk and just start denouncing. So-and-so is just a rabid racist. You are toxic masculinity. They just launch these fierce insults. And the indignation is intense. And I want to say, what are you so angry about? Why are you so upset when you talk about colonialism? You're upset about something from 200 years ago. You're 21 years old. You, you actually have no real relationship to colonialism. I look at Students on, on college campuses in the United States. Uh, they're, they're, they may be white students. They come from upper-middle-class backgrounds. They're living on college campuses, which are very wonderful, beautiful little encl- enclaves in, in, in the world. And I said, where, where, where does all this come from? And I think that the identity politics are a transmutation of deep forms of resentment and envy that identity politics has given them a model through which they can funnel all the disappointments, the insecurities, the anxieties that they have, and that, that, uh, uh, that's a powerful attraction.
1: Yeah, and also since they're living on these great college campuses and they're getting a world-class education, I mean, they have privilege themselves. There also seems to be an overwhelming sense of guilt about it. Like they need to act out because otherwise they're part of the system themselves.
3: That's a very a very good point. Thank you. It's like and you, you, you want to say? Down the date, I mean, you—you no, you, you got that. I did not think of that. I should have added that. Yes, yes. And you, you, you can see. Oh my goodness, you're—you're you're screaming about against privilege. You've—you've you've been in private schools all your life. Yeah, you're wearing an Ed Hardy t-shirt right then. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I went to public schools, uh, public ordinary high schools and and, and uh, junior high schools when I was a kid. I went to UCLA, as I mentioned. UCLA, when I started there, was about $400 a year. That's how much it cost to, to go to that school. I had no money. I went through graduate school, and I was broke uh, most of the time. I was living on oatmeal and spaghetti, and I lived in, in very ingenu- diverse uh, neighborhoods, mixed neighbors. I lived in poor neighborhoods, often in squalor and I went to take a job in, when, I got, when I got lucky enough to get, a, to get a professorship in a university. I was suddenly mingling with these professors from Harvard and Yale and Princeton. And they'd gone to these famous prep schools in New England, uh, uh, in, in New York City. And they were the ones who were the most worked up over too many dead white males in this, in this curriculum. Uh, we need more diversity, and I, j- I just look at their own personal backgrounds, and and I say, my goodness, do you even know anything about it? So we've talked about how identity
2: politics can be an intoxicating thing for people, but let's talk about what's great about the great books. So you you're, you yourself are organ- uh, are involved in programs in the United States that um, appear to have really increased in popularity over the last few years. Why is
3: that, and why are young people interested in them? Because When you have students read St. Augustine's Confessions, and there is early in the book of Augustine's autobiography, he talks about being a teenager. And one night, he and his buddies went into a pear orchard. A farmer had a nice pear orchard, and he was about to harvest these pears. And they were luscious, and the fruit was heavy on the tree. And in, in a couple of hours, they trashed the place. They tore all the pears off. They threw them against the walls. They threw them at one another. They just violated the whole place. The vandalism was thorough. And Augustine looks back upon this and says, Why did I do that? Why in the world did I engage in such pointless, wanton destruction? of something that I knew a man had spent a lot of time on and was going to cost him a lot of money. Why did I do this? And he spends the next several pages examining the group dynamic involved in that vandalism that he committed. And he says, I wouldn't have done this alone. I would have done it, I did it because I was with others of my age. That's one very important factor. And it proceeds and becomes... I think the most penetrating rumination on adolescent peer pressure that I've ever read. We talk a lot about peer pressure among adolescents, and peer pressure has never been so powerful as it is today, especially in the digital age when the peers, or teenagers are communicating with one another all the time. They're copying one another. They're competing with one another in, in different ways. And that Augustine's examination of this, where well, he reflects upon himself, I think it's a very valuable exposure for 18-year-olds who are undergoing the very same thing at that moment. And that these are what one finds in the classic tradition. These deep, profound representations of complicated feelings and psychology and social dynamics and ideas about truth, about God, about life and death that 19-year-olds are hungry for. They, are hungry. they need charismatic teachers to present this material, and that means teachers who believe in it, teachers who have conviction about the value of these works. But I pick up Augustine. You read the first couple pages of the Confessions, and you think... This is a voice that I can immediately identify with. It is so modern. I mean, it sounds like it to me. And you can relate. You know, when we're going to talk about relevance. This is completely relevant to, to young people today. And this is what they want. And it's so much better than so much of the contemporary materials that they're given.
1: Absolutely, because uh, the idea when you just said uh, I wouldn't have done this alone does strike me, when, just to go back to identity politics, when people do rush the stage and boo and call names, they, I don't think a lot of them would do
3: it alone. No, yeah. no. And they work, they work one another up. And what I would like to do is, if we could if we could get this somehow, say you got 30, 30 kids who rush a stage or who pile up chairs to block entrances or so on, I would love to look at their social media in the previous 24 hours to see how they've gone back and forth and ramped one another up, gotten one another emotional, and built up this lecturer into a demon so that Christina Hoff Summers is not just a scholar who actually is a pretty mild-mannered person. I've I've, I've met her before. Friend of the show. She was on a few weeks ago. Good, good. And and so you've heard her. This is a very reasonable, rational... Uh, Person who actually has pretty moderate views that most of the American public actually agree with. Not the elite, not the academics, not the feminist uh, advocates, but she's saying nothing that is off the chart. Crazy. But you see these kids going back and forth on social media that turn her into a demon. That's where we need to have them read things like uh we need to have them read things like Augustine's confessions we need to have them read about the French revolution to see where rational opposition to the monarchy turned into mob violence yeah absolutely
1: uh if i can quick tangent like just on the french revolution i remember i read um uh, Citizens by Simon Sharma, and yes, there was yes. like the second, I read that second, yeah, fantastic. But there was this like one scene where uh, the second time they stormed the Tuileries Palace, like some of the f- uh, some of the protesters just happened to be wearing the same colors as the king's guards, and they got stabbed to death by the crowd. And you know, you just can hear them screaming, "Like I'm on your side, I'm on your side." But mob mentality is like, I just got to keep stabbing. It's just such a jarring event.
3: Mob psychology is a different thing than a group of individuals, yeah. right? Something happens to a mob where a different life takes over the mob. I, I wrote a book about mob violence in Atlanta. In the city of Atlanta, there a big race riot that took place there 100 years ago. And so you could see how the mobs formed and how they'd been worked up for days, uh, in fact, with stories of black men attacking white women. And, and that this became a form of hysteria. And it just took a little a little match tossed into the street to get the mob going and turn these otherwise more or less sane people into a mass that was insane.
2: So you mentioned before uh, how important teaching is and having a good teacher can bring books to life. I had a great year 11 literature teacher who, you know, don't get out of Mrs. Thompson if you're still listening, but um, so how, how important is teaching to this, the, the passion of the teacher at the front of the class?
3: It doesn't happen without teaching, right? I mean, it's very hard for a 19-year-old in, in 2019 to say that I'm going to find something meaningful in the Aeneid. 2,000 years ago, you know, Virgil's characters, Dido, this, this queen of Carthage, well, what, what does that have to do with me? They really need a bridge, to carry them over to understand the story of Dido and Aeneas as a love story. It's one of the great tales of rejection, right? And abandonment. And you touch students with this by posing that question of what abandonment is like. When love gets so crazy, and the, the ancients did regard this kind of love as a disease such that the loss of the loved one means my life is over. Now, some, a lot of 19-year-olds actually go through this experience. And Aeneas is told by the gods, you've fallen in love with this Dido queen in Carthage. You've had your wonderful times together. You've got to leave. You've got to go found Rome. You've got to create a new civilization. You can't tarry here with, with her. You've got to go. And so Aeneas, the next time they meet, he and Dido, uh, he's got this idea in the back of his mind, I, I, you know, I, I can't stay around here. And he loves her. He loves Dido, and she's an enormously appealing figure. So is Aeneas. Dido, of course, has radar, and she senses, well, what's the matter? What's the matter? And he's I, you know, I, 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 I think I have to go. Just, what? what are you doing to me? You have destroyed me. And this is the kind of episode that takes place among 19-year-olds. The first loves that they have can be absolutely crushing. They don't know how to cope with the kind of rejection. Dido's story doesn't end well. She copes with her rejection by killing herself. And Aeneas doesn't know because he's snuck away uh, in, in the night. But... This is the material through which you filter complicated, difficult experiences that you have. You don't through it do, through Disney movies. You don't do it through today's social media. There's too much junk out there that inculcates the wrong lessons, and is bad for you. Uh, these are the these give you the equipment for you to comprehend what is happening to you as you are shifting out of childhood and into adulthood. And a teacher has to be the one, a mentor, doesn't that mean a classroom, a mentor of some kind, has to pass along that conviction about the voices of the dead most of the intelligent people and the wise people are dead. They're long gone, but we still have their record in their in their books and their art and This is good for you, and it is so much better than the youth culture you're immersed in all the time.
1: Last time you were on the show, we try to get you to uh Really now down like a, a reading list for people coming out of high school. Uh, so we've got two. We, we didn't get a whole lot of titles from you last time, but now we've got Aeneid and we've got
3: uh, Augustine. What would be some other books that you'd recommend people really need to read? I'm going to give you a very unsurprising list. You got to read. You have to read Dante, at least Inferno. You should read Sophocles' Antigone, uh, a very important play which is good for young people because it's about a young person defying a familial and state authority, a certain form of rebelliousness out of loyalty uh, that she acts on, and then the consequences that she suffers for having broken the law uh, in, in the way that she does. Uh, I, I think that you should get all your myths down. Mm-hmm. You is- should know the story of Narcissus. We live in an age a rampant narcissism right yep I People are just there, the uh, now, uh, just hosting podcast now just i was walking around you know walking around uh, sydney around the wharf and had to keep walking around all the people taking selfies of of one another i told my wife the other day honey i want you to put on my tombstone he never took a selfie okay this, this is what i want to be re- remembered for uh but in an age of rampant narcissism, and we know that much of the web is, is an invitation to that. You remember the, the uh, motto of YouTube at the beginning? I do not. It was in the upper left-hand corner. Broadcast yourself. YouTube. The TV always has actors. You can be the one who's on the tube now at this point. And that's what it is for a lot of people. It is my self-broadcast, my amplification. <coughs> All right. Let's know the story of Narcissus, right? These ancient myths are important for a reason. There's a reason that Freud wrote an essay called On Narcissism and made narcissism into an important modern psychological condition. Well, we go back to the original myth because we see Narcissus is born, and he's extraordinarily beautiful from day one. His parents ask Tiresias, who's passing through and often gives prophecies. They ask Tiresias, give us what's going to happen. Tell us his future. And Tiresias says, he will be a great man as long as he never comes to know himself. Well, you know from that moment, he's going to come to know himself, and he's not going to be a great man, right? That's the way the plot is going to work. We're sure of that. But Narcissus grows up extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, everyone falls in love with Narcissus from, you know, again, at every age. The gods fall in love with Narcissus. He's one of those off-the-chart, beautiful figures. And what we realize out of that story is people with extraordinary beauty are doomed. They are doomed human beings. They are going to end up being stunted characters because what do they see in other people's faces all the time. Infatuation. They're going to see people enamored with their, with their appearance constantly. This gives them a narrow conception of their own condition. My being, what is my being? I am an object of love. Everyone loves me. Now you can think, do you want to be around a person like that? I mean, narcissists are impossible people because narcissists constantly need reinforcement because I'm special, I'm amazing, I'm extraordinarily beautiful. But where does it come from? It comes from others, right? It's not internal. They've internalized this because of that response from others, so they need others constantly to maintain that conception of themselves they have to affirm out of the others all the time so narcissists are constantly working on you to say yes yes you are special you're beautiful you're extraordinary and and so this creates again a faulty personality right someone who has no realistic conception of how to relate to other people if everyone you relate to instantly falls in love with you you don't know how to understand different kinds of judgment you don't know how to have the ordinary give and take that human beings have to have with one another. And so when, when Narcissus eventually leans over to drink in that pool and sees himself, you know what's coming. I'm in love with that thing. It's me, and I'm in love with myself now. I am so in love with myself now. I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to die right here. So the myth there is a sort of piece of intellectual equipment that all young people who feel the lure of digital technology of social media of saying i'm going to send uh, through instagram this plate of my lunch before i eat it because it's part of me i'm going to eat this this experience is happening to me everyone has to know you're thinking oh my goodness so Let's go back and let's review the myth of Narcissus, okay? So the myths are a good start. Is that oh, that's what I'm getting at? So, so the myth, yeah, read Ovid, you know, o- Ovid's renditions of of these different myths. Uh, this, this is another place. I mean, you, y- you, you look for those works that are going to do a couple of things. One, that are going to give them moral instruction, right? Moral instruction, such as the myth of, of Narcissus, but also give them aesthetic development, right? Aesthetic development. So... That they realize that one can make discriminations of aesthetic value. If you have uh, uh, spent all your time uh, drinking, uh, uh, drink drinking Budweiser, and someone hands you a glass of a 1982 uh, Saint uh, Estèphe, uh, a Bordeaux. 82 is one of the great years in in Bordeaux. You're going to drink it, and it's not going to be much more than grape juice. You won't know what you're drinking. It's going to take time for you to drink a lot of different wines and cultivate that palate so that you get a feel for the nose and, and, you know, what it tastes like up front and what the finish is like. And I know that can get very pretentious, uh, but this is a, a cultivation of taste. And it carries over into music as well. Uh, So when students are in my class and I am teaching something like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, there are quotations in The Wasteland from Wagner. And so I'm going to play them some Wagner. And most of them, they haven't heard any of this before. Classical music doesn't really exist for them. The rap music is the most popular music in American college campuses today. So I have to play this for them. See, now this is, this is a world here of high art, this music. And it's going to take time for you to hear it. You need experience. You need extensive exposure before you can start hearing it. But I promise you, once you get there, you're going to realize that the tastes you had when you entered this university at age 18 are going to seem to you hmm, a little adolescent because you were an adolescent and if you leave this university liking the same music that you liked when you entered this university you have failed you failed yourself we failed you too but you failed yourself you haven't grown aesthetically your taste is no better than it was before so You are going to seek out over the course of your college career the things that are going to advance your discernment so that you're not just a consumer. You're going to read great novels, and then you're going to find that Harry Potter isn't that great. It was good when you were 13, but it's time to grow up. Uh, So you find uh, the novels of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Jane Austen so much better, so much more meaningful uh, than, than what you've, what you've know before. So we, 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 we look in terms of formation, right? What are the works, you know, it, the French term for education is formation, right? Forming your sensibility, building your knowledge. What are the works that are going to do that? What are the works that you should read now that when you're 30 years old are going to have helped form you into a, a grown-up. So, in
1: your latest book, you're uh, talking about the physical act of reading. Uh, so how do you feel about audiobooks? I love audiobooks. Yeah,
3: good. Okay, see? For the well, good reader, I, I love audiobooks. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would do long drives across the country for for a few years there. I would pull into a gas station to fill up, and, and I, I didn't want to turn the car off. because We're right in the middle, right in the middle of this chapter, and I wouldn't want to stick with it. So I love audiobooks. No, those are, those are, those are great. Different kind of experience, uh, but actually a very good experience. And the vocal articulation, I think now, I didn't talk about this before, but the vocal articulation of these books is especially crucial because we're in a situation now where the ordinary lingo of Americans is puerile, if not juvenile. And I will tell my students after listening to them painfully for a couple of class sessions, look, if you put a like in every sentence, no one is ever going to take you seriously. You've got to stop. Like is a verbal disease. It's a blight upon the king's English. You must stop. And by the way, you, in this classroom, you can't use the word cool, awesome or basically either.
1: I'm down to four words in my vocabulary <laughs> now. <laughs> if we're going to knock out all We're, we're going to build up. We're yeah. going to build you up. So. All right. So, uh, yeah, because there can be a bit of uh, snobbery about the physical act of reading versus audiobooks. Like, some people do believe mm. that you need to sit down with a book and be just there. Uh, but audiobooks, to me, that's just a hark back to the way people have been consuming stories for oh. centuries. And and if you I get don't. the right narrator, it's just brings it into a new life
3: sure sure and, and I, I tell students uh, that okay you got you got this summer why don't you why don't you go through a program of uh, watching productions of Shakespeare you know each night do a couple acts of one of Shakespeare's great plays on YouTube it's all there you know you don't have to read it listen to Shakespeare the way it was originally performed uh, you know, you can watch. watch you can watch movies. Lawrence Olivier is Richard the Third. He he did a few things with the text, uh, but this is from the early fifties. Lawrence Olivier is. You guys know Lawrence Olivier? Yeah, he's one of the great actors of, of the twentieth yeah. century. Okay, he was is it known as a, as a. he was he was in some Hollywood movies, but also a great stage actor. Yeah, as I well
1: went at a few of these Shakespeare productions when I was growing up.
3: And his Richard the Third is mesmerizing. You can't take your eyes or ears off of him. During, during the entire play. So there, you watch movies. Uh, you can watch movies of American plays like Death of a Salesman. They're, they're all out there. And popular culture used to deliver a lot of high culture indirectly. So Bugs Bunny, the Bugs Bunny cartoons, you guys know the Bugs Bunny cartoons? Mm-hmm. Okay. They did one, one based on Mozart's The Barber of Seville. Okay. They, they did a Bugs Bunny that was based on Wagner. Uh, operas. You got classical music in cartoons all the time. And it was just background, right? And it was funny and, and used very, very skillfully. Uh, you would get you would get opera through a lot of movies, popular movies would be would, would be based on operas uh, in 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 some way. And the transformation of popular culture, mass culture, roughly from the 70s through the 90s, classical music, classical literature pretty much disappeared over the course of that time. I mean, Johnny Carson was a late night talk show host. He was the Stephen Colbert of his age, I and mean, tremendously popular. Johnny Carson, he goes on vacation for a week, and his replacement is a woman named Beverly Sills. Beverly Sills was an opera singer, but she was that famous. Right. Opera singers were, were famous popularly uh, at the time, but that young people through popular culture, they don't get the, the, the classical music uh, references or the, or the great literature uh, references, the Shakespeare uh, anymore. Is there anything from the modern era that you're
1: thinking is worthwhile and can stand up on its own with the historical grades? We're, we're in the
3: dark ages. We are in the dark Every, ages. Everything's dark. That's Everything's going down. Terrible news for Breaking Bad. Uh, you know, we, we, had, uh, we had 2,300 years. That was a pretty good run for the life of the mind <laughs> yeah. and, That's and lot to get, high, right? high culture yeah. and everything. So, uh, you know, we, we should feel... Th- everything comes to an end. Um, mm. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. But, no, the the... I, I, know, I don't have time to watch these, these, these uh, uh, Netflix, these TV shows like Breaking Bad and mm. The Sopranos and Mad Men. But I think that those were very polished. I, I saw a couple of episodes. They were very well written, uh, well acted. They were, they, were, they were what you would call mid-cult, uh, not high culture. They're mid-cult, but they're very good mid-cult. And I respect, well done, mid-culture, uh, popular, popular material. And I think that that's an area where you see a lot of creativity and inventiveness going on. Certainly not in Hollywood movies. They're much better than anything Hollywood is putting out. I mean, it's an embarrassment to look at all these Marvel superhero films. I'm on on airplanes a lot. And to see these 40-year-old men watching these superhero movies, I say, guys, when are you you ever going to grow up? My goodness!
1: Yeah, it's like with Marvel. I, I I've seen about half of them now, and it does seem to get to a point where I can watch the first fifteen minutes, and I can tell you step by <laughs> step what's going to happen for the next hour and a half. There's yeah, not a whole lot more of formulaic. Uh, you
3: know, I'd rather watch a Star Trek episode, <laughs> the old Star Trek with Captain Kirk. Ah. You know, at least you had good scripts there and interesting, interesting characters and the dynamic uh, b- between them. Yeah.
1: All right, uh, we'll change tracks yep. for a bit. So. Recently, you've spoken about Trump's executive order on free speech on American campuses. Now, Pete and I uh, have discussed it on the sh- this show a few times, taking both sides of it. What did you make of the executive order?
3: Well, I, I was at the White House that day uh, and spent a few hours talking with, with some of Trump's uh, advisors and then up there in the ceremony, uh, which was supposed to be in the Rose Garden. They had to, we had to move it inside because it was pouring rain into the, the, uh, uh, into the East Wing. Um, but the executive order was created because you had some high-profile episodes of mobs uh, preventing uh, mostly, usually conservative, not always conservatives. Bill Maher, for instance, was prevented from speaking at Berkeley, and he's uh, he's a big libertarian, but he made some anti-Islam comments in advance, and so they they targeted him as well. But... Uh, you got a few cases of students rushing the podium in a classroom and just pretty much pushing the teacher out of the way and taking over the classroom. Yeah, some famous ones from Evergreen College with one Evergreen, of the one, Yeah, yeah. Re- remarkable what was what was happening there. Milo Yiannopoulos uh, provoking some mobs at, at Berkeley and other places uh, as well, which I think was 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 horrible. And I think that the uh, the uh, Depriving Ma- Milo of, of a visa here in Australia is a big mistake. Uh, this isn't the way in which you're going to handle the attraction of a figure like Milo. A lot of people want to hear him speak. And one reason is they are feeling frustrated with political correctness, with uh, forms of coercion that they experience. Uh, over what you can say and what, what putatively responsible opinion is supposed to offer. And Milo is, I think, an ingenious performance artist. Uh, I don't say that as a negative term, performance artist, in the mold of the 1960s left-wing performance artists who would use antic humor and raillery and performance to engage in a form of political critique. And Milo, I I, I see, turning that uh, toward the other political direction, and that really angered the left because he was funny and he was fearless, and a lot of young people liked him. And the left wants to cast the right as the humorless, puritanical, religious, uptight kind of people. And the truth is, we know now that humor has abandoned the left. Political correctness isn't funny, and it doesn't like funny. And one of the things Milo would say in his speeches was, what is the sound that a dictator, what is the sound that a regime of that kind hates the most? Laughter. And so they, they, they had to take, take Milo down, and he was, he was edgy enough where he, he crossed some lines, and they got him for that. But Trump's executive order follows from those incidents. And a lot of people said, we do, really don't need the federal government taking this executive order because these inc- incidents are few and far between. They're rare. Well, the fact is, soft totalitarianism works with rare incidents. You only need one incident of someone getting mobbed, getting harassed, threatened, or deplatformed, and the people who did it escape punishment. Everyone takes the lesson. I don't want that to happen to me. The chilling effect from a single incident expands way, way beyond that particular incident. And so soft totalitarians understand it, it only takes one. And we make it an example. If you, if you touch this, if you do anything like this, the same thing's going to happen to you. And no one can stop us from doing it. That's the context in which Trump's executive order uh, came about. And he said, okay, if you allow these episodes to happen, college leaders, and the students who shriek and shout and scream and disrupt are not disciplined, you're going to lose federal money. And the university research centers need federal dollars from the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes, these federal agencies that give money to universities to engage in research. And the universities now are the main engines of biomedical research in the United States. And all the scientists and the deans of the medical school are going to say to the college presidents, look, you've got to stop these little mobs from forming. Or we're going to lose our money. And the sad fact is that college leaders now who sit on you know 5 billion dollar endowments have to protect the brand. They have to keep the money flowing. Money is pretty much the only thing they will really respond to, not principle. Money. Because they are again, the stakes are very high and they're they're high-level bureaucrats. And if they see the money threatened, then that's, that's when they're going to have to try to maintain standards of academic freedom and free speech.
2: You wrote in the New York Times recently that a lot of college presidents actually secretly support this, but wouldn't say so publicly. Why is that, do you reckon?
3: Well, they don't want to say so because many of the protesters are from historically disadvantaged groups. So if the black students on campus are out there protesting what they see is racism on college campuses, uh, these college campuses that are about the most liberal progressive places on, on God's earth, but they're out there protesting racism anyway, the campus leaders do not want to say, knock it off or you're going to be suspended or even expelled. They don't want to do that for one thing. They want to keep recruiting historically disadvantaged students. They want to keep drawing in underserved populations. They're under a lot of pressure to do that. And right now, African Americans are severely underproportionately represented on college campuses. They need to bring in more African American students. There's political pressure from the government, there is cultural pressure from liberal organizations and liberal journalists and and so on. And so if black students are protesting on campus, the first thing the college leadership says, is this going to threaten the number of black students who are going to apply to our college next year? So they're paralyzed. They don't want trouble on campus. They don't want mobs to form. They want Ben Shapiro to come visit campus, give his speech, and then go away. And then we move on, and the wheels keep turning. Well, now they have President Trump, who has forced them to take action. And when the students say, what are you doing? He says, it's not me. It's Trump. It's his fault. Our hands are tied. We have to follow the law. And remember, the first thing a bureaucrat wants to do is escape responsibility. And here Donald Trump has just taken that burden right off their shoulders. And that's going to keep the money coming in and it's going to free the presidents, the the deans and others from being the object of the next protest.
1: Right, okay. We've got the wrap-up from uh, Dr. Bella Debrera. So uh, sh- thank you so much for joining us on the show. And thanks to all the IPM members who have booked tickets for our events in Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney. And can't wait to see you all there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, thank Mark. Thank you. Thank you too, Mark Bowline, for that interview. Really interesting stuff. All right, let's fly through some. Let's fly through some stories that have made us laugh. What the hell happened to me there? What, let's fly through some stories that have made us laugh this week. And I think we should start with Prince Harry versus Fortnite. So it's definitely Fortnite. It's definitely it's how Fortnite. you say it. Yep. yep. Sorry, not familiar. Man with of the youth, Peter Gregory, definitely knows what Fortnite is. Try to spend not
2: much time <laughs> on the internet. Um, Do you know what a
1: dab is? This is this will be interesting. Oh, what sorry? A dab. It's a big. Oh one. yeah, I know what a dab is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, to you can rock that. Put it a, in front of me. I'm
2: not. This is, a, this is an audio podcast, so we don't need to do that. So Prince Harry says Fortnite should be banned. He, I quote, he says that game shouldn't be allowed. Where is the benefit of having it in your household? It's created to addict, an addiction to keep you in front of a computer for as long as possible. It's so irresponsible. It's like waiting for the damage to be done and kids turning up on your doorstep and families being broken down. He added that social media was more addictive than alcohol and drugs. Come on, Harry. <laughs> Let's get. Uh, Good Let's get serious, mate. <laughs> I miss Trashbag Harry, you know. He used to go to parties and, and, and be the black sheep of the family and get on the sauce. Anyway.
1: Uh, and now he's screaming at Fortnite.
2: Well, look, and as we discussed prior to this, you know, bloke gets a girlfriend. Yep. Suddenly he's going to flower expos. Yep. Suddenly he's, he's
1: not going to the hunt anymore. He's
2: interested in homewares yeah. and he's speaking out on social issues yep. like Fortnite. Yeah. That's I mean, this is Megan Markle, isn't
1: it? Uh, it's either Megan Markle or Harry tried and got killed by a six year old in Alabama on his first round of Fortnite, and said this game isn't for me and therefore yeah. it shouldn't be for anyone and he's bitter about it yeah imagine killing the prince <laughs> yeah just like prince harry and it's like no that's not a username that's actually him what happened but to i thought this is the biggest international incident we've had since the Falklands. yeah <laughs> just killed prince harry in Fortnite. yeah uh
2: but i mean what happened to i thought when did these people start to have a political opinions i thought that it was meant to be that they kept quiet and like the monarch. monarch oh, yeah. the, prince, the royal family I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, like, they've all got all these opinions there. Yeah. So yeah. you're not democratically elected yeah.
1: people. Exactly.
2: Shouldn't you just be, you know, just, keeping things ticking over? Yeah.
1: Where's uh, just the Christmas address and that's about it? That's all we need. But, but
2: they all, like, Meghan Markle does it. The, what's Prince Charles is like, you know, yeah, eight years ago change. said the world was going to win in four years. Yeah. Um, so, any second now. I just any think second now that's going to be true. Potentially know your limitations. Yes.
1: And that includes Fortnite. Yeah. Um Harry would not know what a dab is. Peter Gregory and Harry do not know what dabs are. Right, so I know what the his dab is. Icebreaker. The young
2: Just, blokes at the cricket club showed me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, what, is, I don't what, are you, know. what are you guys doing? <laughs> and that was, and it was,
1: anyway. Oh, dear, oh dear. All right. Uh, okay, closer to home. Sorry. Yesterday in Melbourne and around this country, but mainly in Melbourne, it seemed to be, there were vegan protests. When they're not shutting down cafes, they're shutting down traffic. Uh, A bunch of vegan protesters got in the city. They stopped traffic. They annoyed a whole lot of commuters on Mm. their way in. And uh, yeah, just uh, like I said earlier in the show, they pick amazing ways to make sure that literally no one wants them to win.
2: It's an incredible PR. Yeah. Like, you know, people want to protest. That's fine. But like it's a PR, you know, as you're standing on your cramped Mm -hmm. bus for two hours, you think, you know what? This reminds me of the plight of battery hens. (laughs) Maybe maybe I'm going to be a vegan from now on.
1: It's almost as if, and call me a cynic. I I would never do that, James. This seems to be more about getting good content for the protesters' Instagrams Mm. than making a political point. Who is to say? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. There might have been one or two selfies taken at the protest. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I know a few vegans and they're not like this at all. I I I know a few vegans and they are like this. Anyway. um. (laughs) (laughs) Name names. Uh, they know who they are Uh, they don't listen to the show so i could say it but (laughs) one of them was like i would have unironically gone to the protest and i known about it unironically unironically they use that word incredible all right um the other part of this is there's a serious point to be made here the herald sun is reporting today that taxpayers are going to be footing the bill for the vegan protests in what sense as in like they'll be paying for extra police and all that other stuff milo yiannopoulos by the way Still, the, the Victoria Police still says Milo Yiannopoulos is them money for the extra security. Yeah, company. well, you know, send him the bill. Yeah. If so that's, if, if, if Milo Yiannopoulos is paying for the extra police staff, so should the vegans. Oh well, I mean, obviously, no one should be, but like, yeah, so like, but if that's the no one should be, should, yeah, but then if that's the case, both of them should be paying. Yeah, exactly,
2: and the and the. Uh, trade unions and all the rest of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I mean, it's or no compl- one pays. Or no one pays. It's completely the right point. Another way, like the, I mean, you already pay for the police with your taxes. Yes. Uh, cool. All right. Uh, what have you got for us, Pete? Pay- well, look, this is an issue that's pretty close to my heart, and I've been sort of sitting on it all. Show, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's it's an outrage. It is an outrage. Springville District's local footy club had their makeshift corporate corporate box. So, what they'd done, is they'd turned a shipping container yep. into a corporate box, which they auctioned off. So, this is like
1: a local footy club. Local footy
2: club, Springvale Districts. Uh, and in this corporate box, you know, they glassed it off. They put the TV up with, the, you know, the AFL football on and, and the racing. Yep. Obviously, a few frothies, maybe a few party pies. Yeah. That kind of thing. Nice little earner for the community, nice little earner for club. Well, apparently they raised thousands of dollars because it would be a great afternoon at the local footy in a shipping container. I would
1: 100% <laughs> rock up in a full suit, like look really good just to be in the corporate box.
2: Yeah, I've yeah. done that before actually. Um, I turned up, This is a, let's not go into that. Um, but anyway, the city of Greater <laughs> Dandenong uh what uh,
1: what happened that day
0: Pete? well <laughs> why, like why got you don't want to go into that well okay like i really want to know to what's uh, happening there. it
2: was my soccer team's last day of the year last yep. game of the year we'd already won the league and oh, i decided to turn up in a full suit like they do for the fa cup final just yep. to be a flog. and <clears throat> you that's didn't it. want to share that's that story, story.
1: what's and that's what it? was wrong with that story
2: oh i just it felt like a pretty big segue into my sorted past
1: ah. but um <laughs> anyway Slice of life, babe. People want to know about the real Peter Gregory. Because you know, I, I know about the real Peter Gregory and I want other people to know what I know.
2: Yeah, it was a great day. It was a great day. The opposition weren't happy with it, but it was a great day. Uh, we'd already so, won,
1: suck it. Yeah, already,
2: we're already champions. That's what probably... Anyway, city of Greater Dandenong is the is the council at fault here. They're the ones that have banned them because they don't have a permit for it. Because you need a permit to be awesome these yes, days, James. Yes, you absolutely
1: do. What, uh, you need, yeah.
2: what do you think about that?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, just like... These are. This is a rule completely designed by people that knew they were never going to get invited to the box. It's like they saw other people having fun. They just knew they were never going to get invited. They're jealous of the fact that other people do get invited. Sorry, they just shut it down.
2: It's like this little alarm goes off in the council offices. It's like,
1: meow, meow. Yeah.
2: someone somewhere is having fun. More fun than me, shut it down with the full force of my authority. What about you, Nina? Would you Would you go to a local footy club super box?
0: Yeah, I would love to. Like, I've never been to a corporate box before, so I was like, that's probably my first corporate box then.
2: Yeah, I don't know if the Springvale District shipping container is right, like a corporate, up, yeah. corporate box. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, don't like know if it's up there with Telstra well, stuff at as Marvel long, Stadium. As long,
0: as long as the name is corporate box, I don't, I don't yeah. care if it's a shipping container or not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, as long like as you have as long l-
0: as I've got a free drinks and food.
1: Yeah, someone has asked go. for ID before yeah. you get in there. Yeah,
0: that's you f- feel like you're, you're a, a VIP guest, whether you're not. Yeah, yeah you-,
2: <laughs> you can get on the punt all afternoon. <laughs> Great afternoon. Anyway, there you go. Have they- they- ever
1: laid a bet in her life? I don't think so. Who?
2: You. Me. Yeah,
0: I did.
1: What? What was it on? I Slice of just, life. Pete. No, it no, was just
0: just a, just a little, not a bet actually. It was just a small lotto. Didn't win. Didn't win? Didn't win. I I tried a couple of times. The lotto. (laughs) She's still here. I don't don't have the luck for that. So I was like, decided not to.
1: Oh, that's very responsible. Um, All right. I got one for you guys. So this is the one that I said early in the show was I spent so, so much time trying to figure out if it was an April Fool story or not, because it is just that silly. Mm. Uh, So QUT researchers, uh, QUT always going to be in the news. Uh, They're the ones that originally shut down... uh, Callum Thwaites and all the free speech kids, it's always been a bit of a problem in university. QUT researchers have this week, uh, oh no, last week, come out with this study that says uh, humans don't see cyclists as humans. But yeah. Actually, though. Like, yeah. not just, like, screamed out in anger for momentarily making them touch break like actually like they're like oh we should stop saying the word cyclist it's dehumanizing it's encouraging all this behavior they should be people that ride bikes hmm. so what they did was they got all of these respondents to a survey and they provided them with that you know that famous like the silhouette uh, the silhouette figures of the evolution of man from monkey is like you see one m- monkey and he starts getting more upright and then he's a full human they did that with a monkey, and then they also did it with a cockroach, like a cockroach slowly turning into a human, which isn't what the lamestream media will tell you about the evolution, but it is the evolution that I believe in. Uh, anyway, then respondents that's were crazy. asked, "Where do you put cyclists on these charts?" Now that is when I thought April Fool's joke, because that is the most ins- <laughs> that's the silliest way of trying to figure out people's respondents. Anyway, because uh, I reckon people wouldn't take that too seriously, Pete. No, I reckon people would, as a joke, go, "Oh yeah, I'll put it, put it on the half cockroach, half human figure." That's a bit of a giggle.
2: Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm glad this is not an April Fool's joke because I put it in Thingo last year. And I last put week. It in, uh, Strange Times as well. Uh, but um,
1: what was I going to say? Are they really people? Yes, Pete, they are really people.
2: Okay. <laughs> just kidding. I love bikes. No. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, Pete definitely likes touching broke. But this is, what are they?
2: It was like 55% of non cyclists rated cyclists is not completely human.
1: Yeah, because you provide them with a silly, silly silhouette shot and then just go. Where would you put them? And then there's no, <laughs> there's no punishment for not taking it seriously. Yeah,
2: 442 people in Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. Yeah, um, well, there was other stuff I wanted to. Oh yeah, so one in five, one in five drivers deliberately block cyclists on the road. Yep. Well, one in ten admitted to using their car to cut off a cyclist. Oh. Which sound like similar things, but I don't know.
1: Did you have a point with that one?
2: Just that's that's high, isn't it? <laughs> that's a lot. Of my, all right, that's a lot of people. <laughs> Maybe this study has some worth, isn't yeah. it? But uh, uh, no, nah, like I mean, people who ride bikes. Is politically correct now.
1: Yeah, people who ride bikes and those QUT researchers are people that waste taxpayer money.
2: That's right. All right, All right so and
1: then take us home, Pete, with our uh, university cheaters. So I'll just scroll up. <coughs> just bear with me. So- all right. I'm just padding for you, Pete. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Time in. So under new, I thought you were making point
2: with that music. Now under new legislation, Education Minister Dan Tean wants to wants to introduce, and I quote: "Anyone who helps students cheat through their university exams or during the writing of essays will face stiff penalties, including we're not talking about like getting expelled or getting you know failing that subject." We're talking about two years imprisonment and fines of up to $210,000.
1: Question peg. Yes, James. Why does the government have any involvement in university cheating?
2: Well, that is, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there
1: something for the university to figure out?
2: It is something for the university to figure out. I'm not even sure, like, I mean, obviously this is crazy. Yeah. But, like, what is even the, um, the political, like, what political mileage do you get out of this apart from seeing off your guts?
1: Yes. <laughs> it, it, are we at a point now where it's a seem like... Because the story broke in the US of all those rich kids that were just getting into college. Maybe that's it, actually. Yeah. So why is it now cool for the government to be like, hey, guys, we're still cool. We're going to throw people in prison. Yeah. Why is that the cool thing?
2: For cheating at buddy exams. I
1: also like this. Sorry, 70% of – like, the government released this research to sort of justify it. So 70% of academics suspect their students were cheating or using online cheating resources. First of all, yes. What (laughs) do the other 30% reckon they're doing? (laughs) The other 30% just think, it's cool, man. It's cool. Yeah. yeah just, you know, we're all learning. We're my, all learning. My students don't lie to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so, why is the default option, regulation and punishment? Yeah, exactly. From a Liberal government. Anyway. And I, yeah,
2: it's just like, well, I don't know, maybe this will get us elected. Yeah. <laughs> Let's but just
1: keep uh, throwing darts at the dartboard. Hopefully one of them will stick.
2: Yeah, no, it's just sort of feel like the university needs to look after that themselves. Yeah. All right. That is- I also didn't know there were websites you could get the answers
1: for exams and stuff off. That would have helped. <coughs> Sorry. Things would have been different. <laughs> Wouldn't be here, what, that's for sure. Do, oh, do you reckon do you reckon there's one that would finish your PhD for you? I don't
2: know. Look into that, that was what I was
1: getting at? Yeah, look into that. <laughs> okay. You, you're nearly done. Is this recording? You're nearly done uh all right that is it for the show this week thanks again to mark bowline make sure uh looking forward to seeing all the people that have booked out tickets for the upcoming events in brisbane and sydney and thanks again for coming to the show in melbourne uh thanks again for listening to this podcast available on all good podcast apps and if you are listening through apple Podcasts or itunes leave us a five-star review and just you know get the word out get people listening also do that with the looking forward podcast it's coming out tomorrow uh And yeah, come to the show in private tax humanity. It'd be really cool to see people down there. Nina, if people are already, excuse me, uh, if people already subscribe to both podcasts and they are coming to my show and all this other stuff, how else can they support the work of the Institute of Public Affairs?
0: Oh, just join up as a member. Actually, just visit our website at you Click on the join button, and starting as low as twenty two dollars per year, you become one of the vo- loudest voice of freedom in Australia.
1: Sounds very cool. All right, see you guys next week. Bye, everyone.